Amen. Be seated. Good morning. All right, we're all fitting in here nicely. This is good. Appreciate you helping one another. Appreciate Dustin and his leadership as well. It's a blessing to sing together. We had two more baptisms in the early service this morning on top of, I think, the 18 that we had uh, last week. So still celebrating a lot of those uh, here at Faith Bible Church. It's sort of been a season for that. Uh, Derek Garber baptized uh, two of his kiddos, and so uh, we're excited for the Garber family. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. We're going to be continuing on in this uh, series that we've started in the book of 1 Peter, a series that we've titled Still Standing. And I've actually preached this particular text before. Now, some of you remember back in 2016, uh, in June, when I preached this text, it was such a profound message. Uh, so impactful that uh, you remember that day. I highly doubt that. Maybe you noted that in your Bible. I know we have some people in our church that, that do that. But I have preached this before. This isn't the same sermon. I've changed a great deal of it. Uh, but some of the, uh, the thrusts and main points uh, you might find familiar. But I'm going to start a little bit differently this morning. Have you ever noticed that our favorite stories, they are identity stories? So the stories and the books and the movies that we that we really love and that our hearts connect with are stories of characters trying to discover or trying to prove to themselves who they really are. Consider Pinocchio. Pinocchio is actually one of the very few movies on Rotten Tomatoes that has like a 99 or 100% fresh rating. Uh, people love this movie. As a kid, I couldn't stand this movie, but people love this movie. And it's the story of a wooden toy that's been promised that he can be a boy if he shows that he's honest and truthful and unselfish. It's an identity story. A story I did love growing up is Rocky Balboa, of course. <clears throat> and what did Rocky say? Rocky said in the first movie, before he goes to fight Creed for the first time, he says, I just want to go the distance. I just want to prove that I'm not a bum. It's an identity story all the way through. And then there's this one. This is a story we love, and it's a story of an orphan, and he's discovering the source of the power within himself, kind of a crystallized view of what Star Wars is about. Some of you remember this story. Maybe you remember reading it in high school, The Great Gatsby. And it was Jay Gatsby who said, I didn't want you to think that I was just some nobody. He's kind of a pretender as he works his way through uh, the glitterati of, uh, of a social scene. I didn't want you to think I was just some nobody. It's a statement regarding identity. And then there's this guy, Harry Potter. Harry is a boy discovering who his parents were and then his, his, his destiny, really, to confront and to vanquish evil. It's an identity story. And then there's also these kids, the Pavenzi children, if you know the Narnia stories. So are they ordinary school children from London, or are they kings and queens in another world? They're pulled between these tensions about who, who they are, what's really going on, what's really real. And then there's Jason Bourne. Who is Jason Bourne? <laughs> who, who has trained him to be this this operative, this assassin, what is his past? Can he be redeemed? It's an identity story. 
And then some of you little girls might like this one. A queen. A queen in crisis over who she really is and whether or not she can let other people find out who she is. One of my favorite movies, Chariots of Fire, the story of, of Eric Liddell. This is not Eric Liddell. This is another English sprinter that Liddell squares off with, a guy named Harold Abrams. And Abrams says at one point in the story that he has 10 seconds to justify his existence. Abram's identity is entirely driven by his performance, and as he fails to perform, he's driven to despair. Identity stories. I think deep down we love these stories because to one degree or another, we all struggle with identity. And it's not that we forget our names or where we live. What I mean is we get confused and turned upside down about who we really are. Because the reality is trauma and isolation and self-deception, things we all deal with to one degree or another, they give us a kind of amnesia about our true identity. And so finding our true selves, it can be rather difficult, but often a very beautiful rediscovery. And I'm bringing all this up because identity is at the core of the passage that we find ourselves in today. In 1 Peter chapter 2, the Apostle Peter is, is helping the church realize, helping the church embrace their true identity. Because as it has been stated, these are a group of churches in a region of Asia Minor where it's not easy to be a Christian. Additionally, this church lacks a common spiritual heritage. It's a, it's a racially mixed church comprised of both Jew and Gentile believers. It also lacks a spiritual parentage. And what I mean by that is, is Paul wasn't the one who planted these churches. Peter didn't plant these churches either. So, so I'm sure these churches are wondering about their validity, about their veracity, if they're really going to make it or if they even matter. Most of these churches were likely started by people who heard the gospel on the day of Pentecost. So now 25 or 30 years later, as this letter is written to them, these worshiping communities, these believers in Christ, they're still going. They're still believing. They're still hoping in Jesus. And so Peter, really the closest thing they have to a spiritual father, he writes them a letter. And here's something else that's important to understand about these early Christians that, that this book is written to. Their love, and for, their love for and their obedience to Jesus, it has put them way, way out of step with the culture around them. The culture they're living in is Roman and pagan and increasingly hostile to Christianity. And so that's why in chapter 1, when Peter addresses these believers, he calls them exiles, elect exiles. They're not unlike the Israelites who had been conquered and exiled to places like Babylon or Assyria or, or even when the Israelites were enslaved in, in Egypt. To be exiled is to exist in a culture that is foreign and hostile to your way of life, a culture that's at odds with your worldview. That's what it means to be in exile. Convictional Christians in America are getting closer and closer to what we might call an exiled status. Our culture is increasingly hostile to, to what we believe to be true. We're not persecuted necessarily, but we're maligned more and more all the time. It's, it's becoming very clear that, that this is not our true home. And so in writing to these first century Christians, Peter's desire 
is for them to exile well. He wants these churches to, to, to suffer well as chastisement comes upon them. And to do that, he knows they need a rich and meaningful hope. Otherwise, they're just going to cave in and begin to accommodate the views of the dominant culture. And so that's why Peter starts his letter by declaring the truth of the gospel. This letter opens with what is true about the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you don't know who Jesus is and what he has done, what he has done to give you hope, what he has done to give you a proper and and, and personal relationship with the Holy God, if you don't have that truth right, then you're going to get nothing else right. So Peter starts with with a beautiful, glorious declaration of the gospel. He roots the Christian identity in the mercy of God and in the finished work of Christ. That's why he writes at the beginning of chapter 1, he says, in this you rejoice, as he reminds them of their future inheritance. That's why he tells them later on in chapter 1, set your hope fully on grace, as he reminds them that, that one day they will see the Lord Jesus. Then he tells them to be holy because they've been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. And that's why he encourages them to to earnestly love each other because they've been so earnestly and sincerely loved by Christ. And then finally, he tells them to to put away malice and, and hypocrisy and to crave the word of God because the word of God deals with our divisive hearts like nothing else can. Which brings us to our text for today. Let's read 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. Inspired of the Holy Spirit, Peter writes, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. So what we see happening here in in this part of chapter 2 is a movement from the individual to the corporate. We go from individual reminders that, that we can apply personally to corporate reminders that require a local church to flesh out and to understand fully. But the theme is the same. The theme is growth. Peter wants these believers to grow in the gospel. He wants them to grow in spiritual health and and in number and in maturity and in godliness. He he has a burden for what God is doing in their midst. He has a burden for how God is building the church in these northern provinces of Asia, Asia Minor. The other detail that takes into account the larger context of the book is this. 
First Peter is about 25 paragraphs long. And within those 25 paragraphs, you have about 35 direct commands. 35 imperative sentences or phrases in which, in which the church and therefore, and therefore the believer are told to do something. Set your hope. Love each other earnestly. Rid yourself. We've already pointed some of these out. So anyway, my point, in these seven verses, verses 4 through 10 of chapter 2, in these two paragraphs, you have only indicative statements, which means there are no commands. No commands, no imperatives, only indicatives, only statements of fact for these readers to embrace and to believe. So what we have just read and what you're going to walk through together this morning rings with a message that says, you are, not go and do. You are. And again, as I said, this message is corporate, and I'm going to be talking about it under four headings. Coming to him, being built up by him, believing on him, and existing for him. So first, we are collectively coming to him. That's how verse 4 begins. As you come to him. And the hymn refers to the Lord back in verse 3. That word for Lord is the word kurios. It's, it's God's covenant name. In this context, we connect it to the Lord Jesus Christ. So having tasted and seen that the Lord Jesus is good, the explicit assumption is that we're going to keep on coming to him. The verb coming translates to continuous action. So this is not a, a one-time coming, but, but rather a continuous approach to Jesus. That's what characterizes the Christian life. That's what characterizes the life of the church, a continuous coming to Jesus. And so let's ask ourselves, are we in a constant pattern of coming to Jesus, of seeking Jesus, of craving, wanting, and, and needing more of Jesus? If we've tasted and seen him to be good, we will be in that place. Now, formerly, in the life that we live in the flesh, we're continually coming to sin, maybe a certain sin. But now, by contrast, in Christ, we are coming to him, coming to him. And that's because the church can only embody and resemble what Peter is about to describe if it is continually and perpetually coming to Jesus Christ if its people are dominated by what I would call a preoccupation with Jesus Christ. And so let's apply that principle this way before we move forward. We'll apply it by saying it's not a demographic, it's not a, an approach to community that binds us together as a church. It's not a preferred worship style or a convenient street address. It is Jesus Christ that we have come to and that we are going to keep coming to. This is what realizes and actualizes what Peter is going to tell us in the verses that follow. But before we get to those verses, let's look at what we find, look at what we find Jesus to be when we come to him. This verse tells us at least a couple of details. First, as we come to him, we find him to be a living stone. Now, that metaphor for Jesus is an oxymoron. It's like boneless ribs. It's an apparent contradiction doesn't quite make sense. Stones don't live. 
On the list of dead things, stones are very high uh, on the top of that list. So what's going on here is Peter is deploying very intentional language. Peter's, Peter's making a strong point. It's actually a point rooted in the Old Testament. In fact, these seven verses contain more Old Testament references and allusions than any other passage of Scripture that you find in all of the Petrine literature in the Bible. And if you acknowledge the Old Testament, you know that the stone is the Old Testament's second most often used name for the Messiah. Only the lamb is used more. And so what Peter is saying is the Messiah is the stone, but he's not just the stone that the Old Testament put forth. He's actually the living stone, which is an underscoring of what truth? The resurrection. Jesus Christ, the stone, is alive today. He conquered death and the grave, and because he lives, those who trust in him, we live also. Another encouragement from this living stone language is that Christ is both substantial He's a stone, he's a rock, he's strong, but he's also sensitive. He's living and he cares. And here's why that's important. If you're coming to him continuously, you need to be giving all of yourself to him. So that means every longing, every hope, every sin, every tinge of shame, every shadow, you bring everything as you continuously come to him. But the problem that, that church people sometimes have with this is we absolutely want Jesus to be our Savior, yet we aren't quite sure we can give all of ourselves to him. We, we think that there are some really dark parts of our story that he might just be too fragile to bear. We, we think that perhaps our, our messiness can somehow overwhelm him, and so we keep those kinds of things concealed from him. We watch other Christian people and, and we sort of see how the game is played where, where you might confess sin generally, but never specifically. We, we learn in relationships that we don't want to overwhelm people. We don't want to be too much. And, and so somewhat tragically, we, we transfer that thinking to God, believing that he is unable to bear the weight of our true sinful selves. But consider the truth of this. He's the living stone. He can bear it. He's immensely strong and overwhelmingly caring. He's the living stone. Dwell on that metaphor. There's a lot to it. Your story, no matter what your story is, is not too much for him. He's also chosen and precious. Simple word study tells us that the term used for stone, both, both here and in verse 5, it signifies a stone that's been dressed for a building. So, so not a raw boulder or any, side, or any sort of a, a creekside rock, but, but a carefully fashioned, perfectly quarried stone. In the ancient Near East, builders would, would quarry huge rocks to build, to build buildings, and that's the kind of stone Peter is referring to. And perhaps a stone will be brought forth that the builder did not deem to be the right size or the right density or with straight enough angles. And, and in that instance, the builder, he would reject the stone. And that's exactly what Israel did with Jesus. He did not meet their specifications, so they rejected the stone. They rejected the Messiah. And to their shame, the stone they rejected was God's chosen stone. 
And this concept of being chosen just means he was precious in the sight of God. It means God examined him, and in examining him, God took out the measurements of his own perfections, measured Jesus Christ, and said, this is my son in whom, I'm, in whom I am what? I am well pleased. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He is the elect. That's what choice means. He's God's elect stone. He's also precious. The word for precious means costly. It means highly prized. It means rare. That's Jesus Christ. That's the one we are pointing everyone and everything toward because he's the one we're all to be coming to. And something happens as we come to him. We find ourselves, second point, being built up by him. Peter viewed the church as a living temple, as a spiritual house. And his extension of the living stone metaphor to to believers explains that God is adding to the purpose and the glory of the building with each and every believer in Jesus, which tells us something very important. Like Christ is a chosen and precious stone, each Christian then is an essential, finely crafted, chiseled, fit-together stone that enables the whole structure to stand and to fulfill its purpose. Just as Christ was a chosen stone, we are chosen stones. And so clearly you see how corporate this thinking is. This verse should, should help us appreciate how much we need each other as Christians because you cannot build a building with a single stone. God has a purpose for all of us to fulfill, and we are to fulfill it together in relationship and in proximity with each other. An individual stone or brick cannot be built into anything. An isolated stone has has very fixed limitations, but brought together with other bricks, with other stones, and you can build a wall, you can build a castle, you can build a cathedral. While every Christian may indeed have an individual calling, we have a, a corporate purpose, a corporate calling that we cannot fulfill unless we take our place in the community of Christians that is the church. There's a, famous, a very famous story from, from Sparta. It's the story of a Spartan king who, who boasted to a visiting monarch about the great walls of Sparta. And the visiting monarch, as he approached, he, he looked around and he could see no walls. And so he said to the Spartan king, where are these walls about which you boast so much? His host, the Spartan king, pointed at his magnificent at his magnificent troops, at his army. He said, these are the walls of Sparta. Every man is a brick. To exile well, we we have to know that we're placed together. We're we're fitted into something bigger than ourselves. We, We cannot lone ranger this thing. I appreciated what Mark had to say a couple of a weeks ago when he talked about the, the prevailing mentality that, of people that say, you know, I love Christ, but not the church. That doesn't work. That's not consistent with Scripture. Cranfield, the great Bible commentator, he wrote, the freelance Christian who is too superior to belong to the visible church is simply a contradiction in terms. That's exactly right. And I can't move on to the next idea without pointing out the the key verb here in verse 5. The key verb in verse 5 where it says, being built up. That's key in these two verses. And it's a passive voice verb. 
which passive voice means you are not acting, you are being acted upon. That's the passive voice. And what the passive voice highlights here is the church is not in charge of building itself. Let me say that again. The church is not in charge of building itself. And wherever did Peter get that idea? Consider Matthew chapter 16. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus asks Peter, he confronts him saying, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And, and, and to that, Jesus says, that's right. And upon this rock, sort of a play on words using Peter's name, but, but referencing Peter's confession, on this rock, Peter, I will build my church. First reference of church in the New Testament. And who's going to build it? What does Jesus say? Who will build the church? He will build the church. How important this is for, for exiled Christians to remember. Jesus will build his church. How important this is for pastors and, and church leaders to remember. Jesus will build his church. If you could see through this wall behind me, you, you would see the, the new building that's going up. And currently, around at least two sides of that new building, there is just a, a ton of scaffolding. They've been laying brick, they've been putting up ephus, installing windows, and so, and so you can tell a building is under construction when there's scaffolding surrounding it. It's being built, it's being built up, being constructed. And I'll just posit this, when that scaffolding comes down, we will think that that the building is complete. It's done being built because the scaffolding's gone away. We've moved in. But really, every wall of a church, whether completed or not, is sort of its own kind of scaffolding because the church that's being built is not the brick and mortar. It's the people. It's the living stones that inhabit this space. We are always under construction, and it's Jesus who serves as the supervisor, the project manager, the architect, the subcontractors, everything he is involved with in the building of his church. Through the work of Jesus Christ, we are built into a temple in which he dwells. Think about that. The temple that is our personal and our corporate life the sacrifices that we offer to a, a holy God, which, which these Christian sacrifices, they include anything we do to honor him. Our serving, our, our giving, our encouraging, our, our simple surrender to him. The, the priestly work of our feeble and finite hands is acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are built through him. And a building that's, that's that substantial must have a sure foundation, which brings us to the third point, believing on him. As you get into the next section of verses, the, the stone language shifts from living stone to cornerstone. And a cornerstone is all too important for a building. We don't really use cornerstones as much today, but in the ancient world, for any building of substantial size to be erected in a way in which the walls were straight and the floor was level and the roof wouldn't collapse it really did hinge on the cornerstone. Which by way of application, if Christ is not the cornerstone of your life, your life's not going to be right. Something's going to cave in. 
If Christ is not the cornerstone of a church, the church will not be right. Something's going to crumble down. If Christ is not the cornerstone of your marriage, aspects of your marriage will not be right. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us the foundation of the church is the word of the apostles and the prophets, but the cornerstone, the fixed lines, are Jesus Christ. And if you put your trust in that stone, in Jesus Christ, this text tells us you will not be put to shame. It may seem like people want to shame the name of Christ or, or shame those who follow him, It may seem that Christians get stereotyped as naive or or small-minded or even bigoted, but if you believe in Christ, if he has built the church with you, with him as the cornerstone, you will not be put to shame. In fact, you will be honored. What a message for these exiled believers. What what a message for us that, that in Christ there is honor and not shame. So verse 7 says, Those who believe are honored, but for those who do not believe, as the text goes on, they stumble. Why do they stumble? They stumble because they refuse to submit to the word. So just as the word was used to bring new birth to those who who submit and obey its commands, stumbling and offense comes to those who fail to submit and fail to believe. And this was true of Israel corporately when they failed to recognize Jesus as Messiah. And it's true of every individual today who fails to do the same. Therefore, we come to the the end of verse 8. And these, these seem like hard words. They do this as they were destined to do. And if you don't like the sound of that, if you don't think that's saying the disobedient are responsible for their actions or that somehow God is responsible for their disobedience. Listen to Dr. Tom Constable. He he succinctly explains the logic here. He says, God appoints those who stumble to stumble because they do not believe. Their disobedience is not what God has ordained, but the penalty of their disobedience, their stumbling, is. And Constable arrives at that because where it says destined to do, the antecedent to that phrase is the main verb stumbling. Therefore, what the disobedient are destined for is the stumbling. In other words, God doesn't ordain disobedience. He ordains the consequences. In this case, the stumbling. He uses our disobedience. He he accomplishes his purposes and his pleasure out of all things good or evil because he's God. But he doesn't destine one's sin and unbelief. He doesn't have to. Apart from Christ, you are already already really good at disobedience. You are. You don't need his help with unbelief. You You can get there all by yourself. So the penalty for sin is destined because of unbelief. They were disobedient to the gospel, and out of their disobedience comes their destiny of destruction. That's just a short explainer on a very complex verse of Scripture. Mark left these complex ones for me. I appreciate that. (laughs) But us, let's pivot back to us. By God's goodness and his grace, Christ is no stone of stumbling to us. He is no rock of offense to us. He, He is a precious, perfect, living cornerstone. We have built our lives on him and we love him. The lost man, and and perhaps you're 
the lost man here today, and you know that your life is not built on a rock, it's not built on the cornerstone that is Christ, it is on shifting sand, and things are crumbling all around you, and you recognize how, how severe your circumstances really are because you've been about building your life by yourself. Look to Christ today. Look to the precious cornerstone. Look to the living stone who went to the cross for you, died for you, and overcame death for you. In him, your identity would be established. Which makes this last point make perfect sense. We exist for him. And it's here we come back to our identity. Peter keeps returning to to who these Christians are. He keeps hammering this issue again and again and again because, remember, they're up in Asia Minor. They're distanced from Jerusalem and, and, and Rome and Antioch. They have no prominent early church leader to connect themselves to. They don't think they matter. And so Peter assures them by giving them this laundry list of core identities. The first identity phrase he gives them is, you are a chosen race. So quite apart from your own ability, quite apart from your own achievement, you have been chosen by the grace of God to be a part of a new spiritual race. And just as God chose the Israelites from, among, from amongst all the peoples to be his chosen race, he has chosen believers in Jesus to be a people of his own. And it's not because there's something really neat or super spiritual about you. It's never worked that way. If you go back to Abraham, Abraham was an idolater. He wasn't seeking God, but God chose him, chose him to be the, the, the patriarch of God's covenant people. So what, what chosen race means to us is that, that the creator of all things, the sovereign God, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, has chosen to place his eternal love upon you. And not because of anything worthy or attractive about you, his love isn't merely unconditional. It's actually counterconditional. He shouldn't love you, but he in fact does love you. That is an amazing thing. You and I are a part of a company of people that God has chosen to put his everlasting, enduring love upon. A chosen race, a royal priesthood. Royal priest means priest to the king which as Protestants living in a democracy, we don't relate very well to this language. We have no experience with priests or kings. But this is incredible. Again, priesthood implies direct access to the very presence of God. Direct access. For, for thousands of years, the people of God were not able to enter into the presence of God. It, it was shut off to them. Only the priests could go into the presence of God. But when Jesus was crucified, when, when the veil was torn in two, a miracle that occurred to display that now, by the way of the cross, believers in Jesus have direct, unfettered access to a holy God through the work of his Son. That's what puts us in the priesthood. This declaration of our priesthood is a doctrine that we call the priesthood of the believer. And, and as Protestants, we really like this doctrine. We don't need a spiritual authority over us. We don't need a special office of people to, to mediate sacrifices and prayers for us. God has squashed that whole hierarchical system. We're now a kingdom of priests. J. Vernon McGee, years ago, when preaching on this text, he gave the title, 
to his message, you are a Catholic priest. And the word Catholic just means universal. Small c Catholic, I think, in his title. But making the point, you're a priest, I'm a priest. But you know what also is true of priests? The priestly life was thoroughly given in service to the people. Their hearts were tuned in to the people. Everything they did, they did with a mind for the spiritual condition of the people. So yes, we are all priests. Let's lay a hold of that. We don't need a spiritual authority over us. We have direct access to God through the blood of Jesus. But that also means we're pouring ourselves out into the service of others. Our focus is not just my relationship to God, but your relationship to God. So the program is consistent. The temple and the priests of the Old Testament, they are the pathway, they were the pathway, I should say, to knowing God intimately. And today, the spiritual house that God is building and the priests that dwell within it are still the pathway to knowing God intimately. The church is the new temple built by the living stones joined together by Jesus Christ. And you, the priests, are individual believers and you're acutely aware of the spiritual needs of the people in your midst. And you're committed to meeting those needs because you're priests. So that priestly designation has more than just a vertical dimension. It has a horizontal one that we shouldn't skip over. We're a holy nation. Again, a reinforcement of identity. We've been set apart by God to be his special people. Set apart in, is another way of referring to holiness. So just as Israel was to be a contrast society amidst pagan nations, the church is to be a contrast society in the midst of ungodliness. We're a holy nation. And we're a people for God's own possession. It's really hard to capture the power of that idea. But I will say this. What God has done has... He's willingly reached out and and, and taken you and me as his own. He's drawn us close to his heart, and he said, you belong to me, you're mine. You may never experience human success, but God says you're mine. You may be living in a broken body that restricts you physically, but God says you belong to me, you're mine. You may not have a a good group of friends, but God says you belong to me, you're mine. You, You may not have a string of accomplishments behind you, but God says, you're mine. I've taken you as, as my own. You're my possession. You're mine. And when you're facing the unexpected, when, when the suffering comes, when the persecution eventually arrives, this is the identity that you need to preach to yourself. That you're a part of a chosen race. That you're a part of a royal priesthood a holy nation, that you belong to God. And then you live out of that identity. And if you understand your identity, then you get on mission. This is what's next in verse 9. So that you might proclaim, so we're not those things in and of ourselves, we don't just stay there. We are these things that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. So God has given you identity, this this identity that we've looked at, and he's called you to a mission that you could proclaim the one who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's what it means to exist for Jesus Christ. 
We're called to call, to point again and again to the glory of Christ who is our Savior and who is the Savior of the world. We don't offer this lost world a system of redemption, hoops to jump through. We offer the world an actual Redeemer, a Savior. And Peter says the way you, the way you point to his excellencies is by telling your story. Tell the story anytime you can of how this Redeemer called you out of darkness. How he moved you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Don't merely present propositional truths about Jesus, though that is important. When you share the gospel with people, root it in the living story that is your own. You have an epic story. It's every bit as riveting as the ones that I mentioned in my opening, and it's a story of how God has given you an identity, and it's a story that's begging to be told. We had a staff retreat a week or so ago, and one of the places we landed as a staff in thinking about the future of Faith Bible Church is that as we grow, we need to do a better job of telling people's stories. We need to do a a better job of of showing our people how the other members in their midst point to what Jesus Christ has done in their life. We need to do a better job of showing them that that people have this experience with Jesus where they can say, you know, I was once in darkness, I was once lost, but now I'm found. And whether we do that through testimonies or videos or, or some other instrumentation, we know that those stories are fuel for building up the church and fuel for sending out laborers to tell of Christ's excellencies. Now here's the final thing in this passage. I'll conclude with this. If you're going to live out your amazing identity, if you're going to be a part of that mission that this passage is calling us to, you have to remember these truths that close us. Once you were not a people but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And and mercy has changed everything about us. It's what's given us an identity. And, And let these contrasts resonate within you. Once darkness, this passage says, now light. Once alone, now in God's family. Once dispossessed, now possessed by a heavenly father, once awaiting judgment, now receiving mercy. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you and we we praise you for what you've presented to us in this text. Lord, and we want to be a people. We're just confessing this before you this morning. We want to be a people who are coming to you. And in coming to you, you are building us up. You're you're taking us, you're living stones and fitting us together and making us something that we could never make ourselves. And you're adding to our number. And so God, we submit all of that to you. We we, we give to you just the, the right and the privilege to build this church. We don't want to build it ourselves. We wouldn't build it the right way. So we submit all of this to you with, with excitement in our hearts, with desire in our hearts to see what you can do in our midst. We, we look at this identity that you've given us, Lord, and we, we want to embrace and lay hold of it.
I pray that you would empower us to do that. Give us your grace and mercy. If there's anyone here that has never come to you, Lord, I pray that they would do that today. And they would find an assurance and identity like they've never known before because of what you have said about them and what you have done to save them through the work of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.